Okay, Saints, Matthew chapter 28. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we've been blessed as we look to this account that Matthew gave of his king. The account that Matthew gave of our king. The account he gave of the king of kings. Thank you for instructing us. Thank you, Lord, for taking us through your word to clarify what it was that we were looking at through these passages. And Father, it's my prayer that we just didn't gain doctrine, just not information, but that our hearts grew closer and there was a deeper devotion. And that, Lord, through your spirit, you quickened us and that we were able to not only learn more of our Jesus, but fall in love more with our Jesus as we saw who you are and what you did. And then you gave us clarity, clarity of what this word declares as a whole. And thank you, Lord, for that, because you put us on a foundation, Lord, that we cannot be shifted from. It's solid, it's true, it's stable. And we can just put all the rest of the words that we hear in, in line with this and bring clarity, whether it's true, whether it's false. But again, Lord, as we look to your word, we need your spirit. So as always, give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said. Amen. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 28. As we conclude this gospel tonight. Um, next Monday we'll be starting in the book of Exodus, so you can start already reading through that, um, and then we'll, we'll jump in, and again, Exodus will again be a foundational study, so we'll go deeper into what it is that God is trying to show us through that book as well. But here in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. So as we begin to see, it begins after the Sabbath. Sabbath, of course, would be a Saturday. And it's now after that Sabbath, <clears throat> as the first day of the week began. You and I understand that <coughs> with the Sabbath being the seventh day, the day that the Lord rested, <coughs> the first day, of course, being Sunday. And as God began to create, we're aware that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God would say what? Let there be light. Something radically happens on the first day. Jesus Christ comes, and, and as he's about to come here on earth, there is this radical angel that comes opens the tomb, not so Jesus can get out, but so others could look in, 
And it says of this angel, his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Let there be light. And we understand that it is the first day of the week. Now, the first day of the week is significant for us as a church because the children of Israel, they worship on what is known as the Sabbath. They have the, the six days and then they rest on the seventh, which is the, the Saturday. That is their Sabbath rest. However, when the early church began to meet, they would always say that they were meeting on the first day of the week, the first day of the week, the first day of the week. So if you're wondering why do we meet on Sunday? Well, what we do is we don't celebrate the rest of the Sabbath. We celebrate our spiritual rest which is in Jesus Christ. And that verification comes on the first day of the week. So through that first day of the week, this is what we begin to celebrate. And so we look to this as the first day of the week. And so as the early churchmen on the first day of the week, we continue that celebration where our gathering is Jesus Christ is risen. That's what we celebrate every single Sunday where we come in to celebrate the Lord. So it begins in verse 1, of course, after the Sabbath as the first day of the week began to dawn. So early, early in the morning. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now, the question is, who is this other Mary? Well, if you back up to the last chapter, in chapter 27, verse 56, it says, Among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. These were the Marys that were there at the crucifixion. So um, as they were there, they went and they saw where the, the tomb was, where they buried the Lord. And so as they now come, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. So I would say it would be Mary, the mother of James and Joses. So they came to see the tomb. Now as they come and see the tomb, I want you to realize that the other gospel said well, what they're coming to do is they're going to anoint the body of Jesus. They're not coming to an anticipation to see the resurrected Lord. That's not what they're doing. Their doctrine is still skewed a little bit. But what I love is their devotion is right on the money. So although they don't have it all figured out yet, they do want to come and they do want to worship. They do want to come and anoint the body for the burial. And so they're going to be looking for someone to roll away the stone. They're looking for someone to do this so that they could go inside and anoint the body. But as they come now to the tomb, it declares, Behold, there was a great earthquake. There was an earthquake there after the death of Jesus. Now there's another earthquake here as the, the first day of the week comes, things are shaken. And as this earthquake now comes, it declares here there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Something about angels, you just got to love these guys. They have class. What they do is this, he comes and as he comes, the earth is quaking. So whether it's a sign of the power, don't know, but the earth is quaking. But it is quaking for an angel the Lord descended. It, it's tied into the angel coming. And as he descends from heaven, he comes and he rolls back the stone. 
Now, normally it would take multiple men, levers, to get that stone to, to roll out of its trough and come back onto that area where you could then, you know, put it back. So where it normally would roll in. Here he rolls back the stone, and now he comes and he just camps on it. He just says, I'm not going anywhere. Um, there's some ladies that are going to be here. I have a message to give. I'm not done here. So keep in mind... His ministry was not just to roll back the stone. It was to roll back the stone and to wait and declare a message. So this angel has two duties here on this morning. First is rolling away the stone. Pretty easy for an angel. Second is to give a message. And so as he's now there sitting upon the stone, what Matthew declares is his countenance was like lightning. This is his face. So we see that there his face, that he had this glow, and it was, it was almost like, if you've seen lightning, it just from nothing to power, where it blinds you. This is where this angel's countenance was. It was blinding. And not only was his countenance, his face like lightning, blinding, his clothing was also as white as snow. Now, either he had on, you know, very, very white clothing, or... The, the, the light itself, like Jesus, when he went through his um, transfiguration, that his glory shined through his humanity. This could be very similar to what was going on with this angel. Now, this angel here is a powerhouse. He comes and he rolls the stone. He sits on it, and he's just glowing there. Now, verse 4 tells us what these guards' reactions were. Now, you guys know who these guards were because when we finished last week, as we were there in Matthew chapter 27, there, beginning in verse 63, where the high priest went before the Lord, they said in Matthew 27, verse 63, Sir, we remembered while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Now they had this detachment of Roman soldiers that they could use during the Passover time. He says, You have a guard. Go your way, make it as secure as you know how. And so they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. This is the guard that's there. The guard that would be an attachment from the Roman garrison that was given over to the high priest during this time of the Passover. Now these guards came and as they see this angel coming, the earth is quaking, rolling back the stone. He comes and sits upon the stone, and his countenance is like lightning. These trained soldiers, this is what they do. They shook with fear of him and became like dead men. Roman soldiers are now either one of two things. Either they are unconscious. The, the glory of God has come, and as God comes, they're just wiped out, and they are unconscious. 
or they're laying down like um, possums. Don't hurt me, don't hurt me, don't hurt me. I don't know which one it is, and I'm thinking that there's a more spiritual balance where they were simply wiped out and for this time. So they shook with fear, trained Roman soldiers trembling because of one angel. Now it's interesting that this angel isn't even talking to them. It's not like the angel says, beware, I've come. The angel says nothing. The angel doesn't pull out a sword. He just moves around, moves the stone, and he sits on it. And that's enough. That glory, that holiness, that power from the angel is enough to cause these Roman soldiers to, as it says here, shake with fear of him and become like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. I love contrasts. Now think about this for just a second. We already understood from verse 1 that very early in the morning, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, came to see the tomb. They're coming to see the tomb. Now as they're coming, the angel rolls away the stone, sits on it. These guards see his countenance. They fall down as dead. And the angel answers and said to the women. Now understand, these women are walking. They're coming to the tomb. Trained Roman soldiers are terrified, shaking, falling down as if dead, and these women are still talking to this angel. you got to love contrast. These women in their devotion to come and see Jesus, they're not trembling. They're not, you know, falling down dead. Now, granted, they are going to be afraid. The angel is going to give that first spiritual message after the resurrection. But he does come, and the angel answered and said to the women. Now understand, the women aren't lying down. The women aren't pretending to be dead. He says to them, do not be afraid. I'll tell you what, the first message of any spiritual significance that comes after the resurrection of Jesus is simply, do not be afraid. Now, Jesus is going to use this as his second message. He's going to say, don't be afraid. But I think it's important that if the angel is saying this and Jesus is saying this, I think there's a good word for us as Christians. Don't be afraid. Understand that there is, they are about to experience this resurrection power. Jesus no longer in the grave. This power from heaven. The angel comes, rolls away the tomb, sits on it, and just lets his glory shine. In other words, first day of the week, Genesis 1, verse 3, let there be light. And as now we see here, he comes to the, to the women and he says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. So he lets them know, I know what you're doing. I know you're here seeking Christ. It then declares this, for he is not here, he is risen. What a glorious message. You've got to understand that this message is not any little thing to, to just simply declare. And so when we're recognizing here, he's not here, he's risen. There's a lot of scholars that have done a lot of work that try to 
give you data and detail, speaking of um, manuscripts, the dates of the manuscripts, how you can verify that everything that the Gospels are saying are true. I'm not going to go into that detail. Those things are extra biblical. What I'm going to do is I'm going to simply stick to Scripture and let that be the definition that, that we look to. Because what happens is this. There's a lot of people that try to say, well, maybe Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. That maybe his disciples actually came and stole the body. Or maybe Jesus wasn't really dead. He was just almost dead. Or he was mostly dead. And then what happened is when he got in the cool tomb that he became more awake. And so while he was in the tomb, this man who was scourged and beaten and crucified then said, yeah, while I'm on the inside, let me move this four-ton stone out of the way so that I could show everybody that I'm risen. Or, and believe it or not, I actually had heard of an article that this man actually believed that Remember when, when Mary comes and she believes the Lord was the gardener and she, you know, tell me about this. The article went on to state that it was the actual gardener. And what the gardener did was this. He was so concerned over the fact that all of his disciples would be coming to this garden that they might trample his flowers, that the gardener moved the stone, the gardener pulled Jesus out, moved into another location so the flowers wouldn't be trampled. These are the kind of things that are out there. There's all kinds of things that if you want to put your faith in and say, Jesus wasn't written, risen, I'm going to tell you right here, he is not here, he is risen. I just believe what the angel is declaring. Now, understand that there are um, proofs that you can do as far as you know literary proofs and how you take documents, how close they were to the time of the event, how many documents, and you can prove that you know things did actually happen. In other words, was Napoleon defeated at Waterloo? And everyone's saying, well, of course he was. Well, understand, there's more documentation of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there was of Napoleon being defeated at Waterloo. And so you, you think about that, people believe Napoleon but they refuse to believe Jesus Christ. But I want to go into more to um, what is the spiritual significance of this statement. And this is why we do foundational studies. When the angel says in verse 6, he is not here, he is risen. I want to share with you a couple of passages so that you can at least grasp onto a few of these to sort of gravitate to what is the spiritual significance of Jesus being risen from the dead. The first is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. I just want to read it to you. It says, And God raised both, God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So understand, the resurrection of Jesus Christ if he is not risen, then we are all men most pitiful. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, then we have no proof that we too will rise from the dead. And so this whole issue of the resurrection is necessary. It is something that we have to stand on. Something that we need to believe in. 
in Romans chapter 6. I want to start reading in verse 4. And I'm going to read down to verse 11 because it has some context on, on this, both sides of this passage. Beginning in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So as we are buried with him in baptism and then we come out of the water, we're raised with him. Well, just as we are united with him as far as death, because when we die, there's no longer uh, a law that condemns us. We understand that if we've been united in the likeness of his death, certainly, verse 5 of Romans 6, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. We were in Christ being crucified. We were crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So as we were in the flesh, now we died with Christ. He's saying that that fleshly nature, if you can believe it, is has no power over you because that old man was crucified. Verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. What does that mean for us? We die no more. It is so necessary that when Jesus was there in John chapter 11 talking to Mary and Martha, they said, listen, if you believe in me, you will never die. Do you believe this? That death has no ability to conquer us anymore because we died with Christ. Now all we have is this new life that comes with him. So again in verse 8 of Romans 6, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion or power over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now verse 7, 11. You also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we realize here that this new life that he lives, this resurrected life is what? It's a life to live to God. Now, what do we do with this resurrection life? It's a life to live to God, the same truth. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Only one verse I want to share with you. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So now we see this proof that as Jesus now would breathe on his disciples and receive the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> we who receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, he gives what's known as a surety or a down payment. In other words, the Holy Spirit now comes and dwells in me, dwells in you as the surety, the guarantee. 
Now, when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us, what that is telling me one thing, that this down payment that God made on me, that he's going to finish the payment. So when I die, I will never die. I will go to sleep here and I will wake up in heaven. And this is what we're looking to and what we stand on as far as Christians. One last book that I want to share with you and is found in the book of Colossians. Two passages to look at initially in Colossians chapter 2. I want to start reading just verse 12 because it declares this, Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So as Jesus was raised from the dead, we now have this resurrection power through the spirit that's within us. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, it declares this statement, if then you were raised with Christ, if you believe that as Christ rose, we being in him were crucified with him and raised with him, if you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And I think it's important that as we have this new resurrected life that is within us, it's important to realize the life that I'm living, I'm living to God. God, what is your will? What are you wanting to do? And if you want it accomplished here on earth, and if you want to use me as your vessel, you've already given me your Holy Spirit. I have that resurrection power. I can do anything you call me to do. And I think this is why it's so important for us to receive and believe and understand what does this mean when the angel says he is not here for he is risen. To them, understand it is I was completely in error. I was coming here to, you know, anoint a dead body. Now I realize the stone is open, um, is removed from the tomb. The angel is sitting there with the countenance as lightning. These guards are now all wiped out. And now this angel tells these women, he is not here. He is not here. He is risen. So as they were expecting to see someone dead, now they're seeing this heavenly messenger, and they, he now comes and says, come see the place where the Lord lay. So the first thing is you don't need to be afraid. And as Christians, just highlight that, mark that. We do not need to be afraid of anything, because the most the world can do is what? Can destroy this tent. They cannot destroy our spirit. They cannot destroy that which God now lays claim to. And so that is forever. That's our forever. And so he says, come see the place where the Lord lay. And, verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. As the angel comes and he makes a statement, he's not here, he's risen. The first thing the angel wants these women to do is come and see the place where the Lord lay. You need to come and witness this for yourself. You need to come and experience this for yourself. You have to come and literally see 
this empty tomb. How incredible is that, that these women can say, listen, I literally looked inside the tomb and it was empty. There was no one in the tomb. I'm a witness to this fact. I have experienced going into the tomb, looking over out to the side where the body would be laying, and there was no one there. And as a Christian, oh, that's a glorious experience. If you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem and you get to go to the garden tomb, I would, I would just recommend bow down, get, get low, get humble, go into the tomb and just take a look out to the side and see the slab where there, it is empty, where no one lays, no bones, no anything is there. And so as we see here, he says, you need to come and see the place where the Lord lay. You need to come and you need to experience it. And after you experience it, now you need to go and tell of your experiences. It's one of those things, and I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of people who try to gain doctrine and they try to understand a relationship with the Lord. They try to understand loving the Lord and worshiping the Lord. And yet all they have is data in their heads. They don't have you know, a living relationship with God in their hearts. And they're going and they're trying to declare these things, yet they've never experienced brokenness. They've never experienced that whole understanding of, of here's God and His grace just overwhelming me and, and the fact that I could come and pray and accept Jesus Christ and to literally experience that my sins were gone. They were taken away. And I could experience the, the Spirit just coming and washing over me. And when you have that experience, you can go and tell people that experience. If you have data, you can repeat data. But when you have that experience, I'll tell you what, people can try to question away your data. I mean, you can say the, the Bible says he's not here for he is risen. And they can say, well, yeah, the disciples came and took his body. That's just data. But when you can say, listen, I'm literally experiencing a living relationship with a holy God. That, they, that Christ speaks to me and he ministers to me. He does it through his spirit. He does it through his word. And then he empowers me. And I've seen the hand of God in so many ways upon my life. When you declare that, no one can say, no, you didn't. Do you understand that there's a, a powerful thing when it comes to a testimony? And this is where in Revelation 12, they said that they overcame him, the, the enemy, by the blood of the lamb and by the power of the testimony. So we realize that it's looking to the sacrifice. That's what we do. And then my testimony that comes, this is what Christ is presently doing in my life. And I think it's important as a Christian that when you come to this next part, verse seven, go and quickly tell. If you don't have anything that's new in your walk with the Lord, if your testimony is, oh my goodness, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, it was glorious. 20 years ago, it was amazing to see what God was doing in my life. And? That would be the and? If the testimony is there at 20 years ago, what is he doing now? What, what is God doing in your life? The testimony should be updated. 
And today, this is what he showed me. And so when we realize that the testimony can be, this is what's happened, but my testimony goes with walking with God and having a relationship with God even today. And, and as we, we look to this, and you know, there are times that I, I tell people, it's like, and, and as I begin this conversation with you, I begin to pray and say, God, help this heart be soft and open. And they usually don't like it. Some are okay. Well, okay, I'll take a prayer. But, but what I'm saying, that the heart be soft that they could receive these things that I'm saying. And I, I tell people, I'm praying for you right now. And this is the power of what we do. But they say, come and see the place where the Lord lay. And I, I think it's, it's important that we should always have this invitation to tell people, I want you to come and have an experience that death has been conquered. This is what we get to tell people. See, the reality of what's happening in the world right now is this. Last year, it became very, very evident that people were concerned about death. If you haven't heard, there was this virus that came. It was called COVID. And the, the odds of people dying was, oh, about 2% if you were older. Um, it was about 0.002% if you were up to the age of 30. So, in other words, if you drove in Milwaukee, you already had a 4% chance of death. Just driving in Milwaukee. So the, this flu was not as much, but yet through this flu, they would shut down the entire national, national economy. They would shut down the world. They would isolate healthy people so that they couldn't go out and, and live life because they were so afraid of death. And they were willing even to say, even though you have First Amendment rights, we're not going to allow you to have that. Even though you have the, the right to assemble and to worship, we're not going to allow you to have that. But they would take away rights because we are concerned and we have so much concern over your life that we feel it is right for us to usurp certain rights that you have so that you don't die. And all they were concerned was with the physical death. Now, I'm here to tell the world, and I'm here to tell the government that I'm not afraid of the physical death. And what I need to do is I need to go to those people who are afraid of the physical death, and I need to let those people who are afraid of physical death come into the church so I can tell them you don't have to be afraid of death. And if you make laws to say, don't gather, I need to say, well, I really need them to gather because I need to let them know if they're so afraid of death that the real them is spiritual, not physical. See, you, you can die in the physical and you will never die if you have Christ in the spiritual. So my goal is to go to the spiritual of the person and to quicken that and make that alive. Because once the spirit is alive, they will never taste death. And in the same way as the government says, well, you, you can't do this, you can't do this, and we have the ability to usurp your authority, God gives us as Christians the ability to usurp the government's authority when it comes to, I need to make sure this person has spiritual life. And if there's a 0.002% chance that they might reject the gospel, I'm still going to do it. 
I'm going to go and to declare that they do not have to be afraid of death or afraid of dying, that they can understand that God is on the throne. And so when we see here, I think it's so important that, that we as Christians, we need to witness like the angel tells these women, he is not here, he has written, come see the place. Come experience this truth that death has been conquered. I want to tell people that death has been conquered. I want to tell people you don't have to be afraid of death. That God has a plan for us. And so as we do this, what a glorious thing that we begin to see here. And so he makes this statement, I want you to come and see the place. Now realize that there is no deception here. Because we already looked at last week where we looked at the Gospel of John, how it said it was a new tomb in which no one had laid. So there wasn't like a body that was in there from before. So there was no body until Jesus. And now you come and there's no body. What does that mean? It means there's no body. There's no one in here. He is not here. Oh yeah, for he's risen. And so he says, I want you to come and see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell the disciples that he's risen from the dead. Now at this point, once they receive this word, I think it's important that now you go and you witness this truth. The first thing to experience that death does not have a hold, and then to go witness that death does not have a hold. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. It's an important thing that what they are going to do is they are going to be speaking forth a spiritual declaration. Why do I say that? The angel had a message. He wasn't just called to come and roll the tomb and to sit on it and look really cool and, cool and glowing. He was there to give a message to these women. And what the message was, was this. You need to, as you witness this truth, you need to go and declare this spiritual message that you have witnessed, not just heard of, but witnessed. And so when it comes to the witness of things, people can deny and they can deny and they can deny. But the truth is, no matter how much you want to deny, when God gives a word, you can believe that word. When the angel says, he is not here, he is risen, you can believe that. I want to read to you a portion of the Old Testament found in 2 Kings chapter 7. And what happens is this. There's a point where um, the Syria army is, is, is coming and, and is a siege. Now what happens in verse 11 or verse chapter 7 of 2 Kings verse 1 then Elisha comes on the scene and said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, Isaiah, a fine flour, shall be sold, sold for a shekel, and two sayas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now at this point, they were already boiling their children to eat. They were boiling donkeys' heads and, and children just to get something to eat. And now Elisha comes to the king of Samaria and says, listen, uh, a say of fine flour is going to be sold for a shekel. Two say is a barley for a shekel. 
And so an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So he tells this guard, he says, Listen, you're going to see this. You'll never even experience it. Now, verse 3, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? So there's four lepers that can't go into the city because they're lepers. And so they're told to be outside the camp. Now, as these lepers are called to be outside the camp, they can't come in and think, why are we sitting out here to die? You know, we're, why don't we just go and surrender ourselves to the Assyrian army because... If they kill us, well, we're just going to die anyways. But if they don't kill us, well, maybe we'll live more than a day. And so these four leprous men in verse 3 at the entrance said, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we shall enter the city, the famine is in the city, we shall die there. And if we sit here, we shall die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. And they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites, the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. And therefore they arose and fled at twilight, and they left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it the silver and the gold and the clothing. They went and hid them, and they came back and they entered another tent and carried some from there also. And they went and they hid it. And eventually they got kind of very guilty thinking, oh my goodness, this is a day that God has kind of blessed us. If we remain silent, something's going to happen to us. And so they go and they tell the, the, the city of Samaria, they say, listen, the army's gone, come and see it. Well, they're not trusting it initially, but as the people find out that it's true, they run through the gate and they trample down the officer who heard the news. So he saw that all these people would have all this food from the Assyrian army, but he himself could not partake of it. And this is what happens, I think, so often with spiritual truths. These women now say, you have seen, you have experienced, go and declare this truth. There are going to be some who receive it and believe it. There's going to be others who simply cannot. And so they will not be able to partake of the blessing of this resurrection. And so he goes and he says, I want you to go, verse 7 now of Matthew 28, go tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. Now, Matthew doesn't talk about all the times that Jesus was there meeting disciples on the road to Emmaus. He doesn't say when he came in and met him there at Jerusalem. He is going to go eventually to the point of Galilee. And so he's wanting that focus to be, I want you to be aware that when Jesus rose from the dead, that he didn't say, I'm out of here. I am out of here. I'm going down to, to visit those spirits that are captive there in, in paradise. I'm going to tell them they're going to come to heaven, and I'm out of here. Understand what the angel is trying to declare to these 
women to tell the disciples. Go, verse 7, and quickly tell the disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going to hang around for a while. He's still here to minister to you. His resurrection isn't, I'm out of here. His resurrection is, I'm still here to minister to you. I'm not leaving the ministry that I've come to do. I'm still here. And so he makes a statement. He is going before you to Galilee. You understand the, the, the power of that statement. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's going to be meeting you. He's not going away. You're going to journey there. He's going to journey there. There's still a ministry that you guys have to one another. So, verse 8, they, the women, went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. So understand, when you have joy in the Lord and you're wanting to tell people, you're wanting to, like these women, do two things. I want to experience that the death has been conquered, and then I want to declare that like the death has been conquered. A lot of times what happens in witnessing is this. You have a joy because Christ has saved you. You have a joy because the Spirit is in you. You have a joy because you're going to heaven. And then you go and tell someone, and then you have a fear. All of a sudden it's like, Oh, I'm a little bit nervous now. What if they don't listen? What if they don't like me? What's going to happen? And, and I think it's important that you see here that what these, these women do is this. They hear the message. They witness. And even though they have joy, there's still fear. And, and if you ever are afraid of witnessing, just be okay with it. Just be all right with it. Just, just realize that they aren't truly rejecting you. They're rejecting the spirit. They're rejecting God, not necessarily you. They're rejecting the message. But I love the heart that he says, I want you to go tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And these, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Before, behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly, verse 8, from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Now understand, they're not going to be saying just what they heard. Oh, I heard this. They're going to be saying, I experienced this. And this is where it's important in your testimony, in your witness, that you can say, well, I heard Pastor Lowell say this. Or you could say, you know what? I've actually experienced what Pastor Lowell said. I actually experienced this passage that came through the word. And with this experience, I want to tell you of what God did and how that experience was validated through his word and through his spirit. And then, so they went out great quickly, verse 8, from the tomb with fear and great joy. They ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and they held him by the feet and they worshipped him. At this point, I find it interesting that as these women now come, they meet the Lord and he simply declares rejoice. In other versions, they say all hail. It's kind of a, a, a slang for how are you doing? 
And, and he just goes, rejoice. Just rejoice. And they came to him. They hold him by his feet. They worship him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will meet me. So Jesus' first message is, rejoice. Jesus' first message is, I'm here. And, and I'm, I'm here, and I want to have this relationship with you. Be of good cheer. Just rejoice. And so as they hold on to him, he now gives the second time this message, do not be afraid. So as this message comes, do not be afraid, again, that message is the same as the angel. You do not have to fear. Go and tell my brethren. Now, uniquely in the Gospels, Jesus has yet to call his disciples brethren. First time. First time he calls them my brother. Now, it's interesting that these are the ones that left him. These are the ones that were always arguing when he says, listen, I'm going to be given over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be crucified. Don't worry, I'm going to rise. And then through this, we begin to see here the reality that Jesus says, I want you to go and tell my brother. You need to go and witness this. What they're doing is as they go and make this declaration. Remember in the earlier part of Matthew, we were in chapter 12. And a couple of verses I want to read to you. I want to start in verse 38 because there was this group, the scribes and the Pharisees. And they made this statement, teacher... We want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign. And as they make this statement, I want to see a sign. But he answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What these women, through the counsel of the angel and through the counsel of Jesus, are telling them, <clears throat> you need to be aware that this one sign that Jesus said, here's the sign. This is the sign of who I am. This is the sign of what I have done. And so... What we see here, he says, I want you to go and tell them, I will see them in Galilee. The sign is, I'm risen. You tell them, I'm going to meet them in Galilee. Now, they go and they witness this prophetic sign that Jesus had declared of himself to the disciples. Now, verse 11, we see a shift in the narrative because now while they were going... Behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. Now, remember, these Roman soldiers that were a contingent now to serve the high priest, they now come to the high priest and they now have to report. Not all of them, others are still there guarding again, and but these now, some of them come and they go into the city. They report to the chief priest all the things that have happened. So what they're saying is this. 
either they've witnessed the conversation of the angel that they weren't completely out, or they witnessed the angel saying, hey, he is not here, he's risen, go and tell his disciples, or they witnessed Jesus coming around these women holding onto his feet, and he says, no, don't be afraid, go and tell my brethren, go to Galilee. These guards now go and they tell the chief priest all the things that have happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and they consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying to them, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. So the chief priests now get word from secular Roman soldiers saying, uh, he's not there. After three days and three nights, he's gone. The stone was rolled away. You can go inside and see the tomb in there, and there's no one in there. The seal was broken. The stone is rolled, and there was this angel. His countenance was like lightning. Oh, my goodness. We were terrified of this being who was sitting upon the stone. And they now, these chief priests, rather than saying, this was the sign. This was, we asked for a sign and we got the sign. So what do they do? They throw away the sign. They throw away the sign to say, listen, I, I'm wanting a sign, I'm wanting a sign, and yet that sign isn't enough. Now how many times do we as Christians actually ask God for a sign? God, I need a sign. If this is your will. God, this is your will. What should I do? What is the sign? And, and keep in mind that a lot of times what happens is we don't need a sign because we already have the word of God. And God already gives us his word. And we say, well, well, I want a sign. Now, it's interesting that when Gideon was called, I want you to go and conquer. And, oh, Lord, I'm, I don't know about you know, taking out these guys. Uh, I need a sign. And he says, so I'm going to put out a fleece here. And if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, I'll know it's you. So God says, all right, fine. So the fleece was wet and soaked and the ground was absolutely dry. And he goes, huh. All right, well, let me get another sign. Now make the fleece dry and the ground wet, and then I'll know it's you. And, you know, I'm surprised if you make it checkered, make it diagonal. You know, show me a sign of how many times can we try to say, God, I want another sign other than your word to say whether this is true, whether I should walk this or not. And it's about just truly believing the word, walking the word. And so they now have this sign. They reject the sign. They reject the word of the Lord. He said, this is going to be the sign that I will rise on the third day. And they now give a large sum of money to the soldiers. So these soldiers, now keep in mind that according to <coughs> secular studies, you don't see it here. You, you see some aspects of it, like the Philippian jailer, when he thought the people were to escape, he tried to kill himself. The reason being is secular studies actually say that a Roman guard, if his prisoner escaped, that he had to take the penalty of that man's crime. So if you were to let someone escape that was sentenced to death, then you were now sentenced to death, which is why the Philippian jailer tried to kill himself because he thought these people had escaped. The Roman soldiers were thinking, oh my goodness, we failed in our duties. We are going to die. 
And the chief priest says, no, no, it's not going to be a bad thing. He said in verse 14, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So take the money and, and understand if anything comes against it, we're going to be the ones to back you up. All you need to do is tell this story. They gave them a bribe and they said, make this statement. While we slept, while we slept, the disciples came and stole him away. While we were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body. Now, think about this. I'm not a lawyer. <coughs> but my first question, if I was a lawyer, is, okay, if you were asleep, how did you know it was the disciples? I mean, think about that. If you're asleep, you don't know who stole it. And if you know it's the disciples, it's you weren't sleeping. One of the two has to be true. Either you were asleep and you don't know who it was, or you saw the disciples and you did nothing to do it and you pretended to be asleep. This whole thing just doesn't line up. And so you have this thing where they're wanting to go with the narrative that they first brought to Pilate. They said, you know, he said he was going to rise and we're afraid that his disciples are going to come and take the body. And so they said, let's go with that narrative. It worked the first time. Let's stick with it. And so, verse 13, tell them. You tell everyone who is asking, where is his body? His disciples came at night, stole him away while we slept. This comes to the governor's ear. We will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So there was a second narrative. A second narrative, the disciples came and stole the body. Now verse 16, this is where it comes into just a real key. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain, which Jesus had appointed for them. And when he saw, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I, I love the heart of this because it doesn't just say we were all on the same page. Some are cautious. When it says they're doubting, they're, the better translation, some were cautious. They were really like, what in the world is going on? Some just simply came and worshipped. There he is, there he is. And some are like, wow, this is bizarre. This is crazy to me. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, when he says the word all authority, it means all authority. It just means all. Everything. I have absolute power in heaven and on earth. Now, this is something that we as Christians need to bank. God has all authority in heaven. He has all authority on earth. Nothing can be done here without God saying, I'm okay with this happening. This is going to be me doing a work. Now, what the enemy means for evil, God can turn around and use it for good, use it for his glory. God can use these things. But he says, all authority has been given to me. I'm the one who has authority in heaven and on earth. And then he says, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So keep in mind that as you make disciples, you go and you make these disciples, 
that we're going to find out eventually when we get done with the book of Exodus and we go into the book of Acts, that we're going to realize that it really was not possible to make disciples in the flesh, but you have to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, then the Spirit, He says, I have to leave so the Comforter will come. And when He's here, He's going to convict the world of sin. He's going to do that. And so we're waiting for that time. Of course, if, if they were waiting, it comes in Acts chapter 2. But He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now they call this the Great Commission. And I think it's interesting is there's a whole lot of people that are going and trying to make disciples. And yet there's another word that God gave to his children, and this is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Do you really think that you should be going and making disciples if you don't love the Lord? It's sort of like the women. You have to experience this, and then you can go and tell it. When you experience loving the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and then you go and make disciples, you're saying, what? I'm going to tell you these experiences I've had with the Lord. Not just I'm going to tell you of words that I've heard or doctrine that I've declared. And the, the Lord is so gracious to them. He was gracious to these women. They had bad doctrine. They were coming to anoint the body. And Jesus said, ah, oh, oy vey, what are you doing? Didn't you understand? Didn't you hear when I said I would rise? He did not chastise them at all for the, the error in doctrine. He loved them. He says, listen, I'm going to give you a message. I'm going to give you a ministry. Go and tell my brethren. And the same thing here. He's telling his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But you have to understand that you have to experience what it is to be a disciple. And then you can go and make a disciple. You have to experience what it is and then go and declare those experiences. And when you baptize them, you baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's the entire Trinity that is in work in bringing them into the right relationship to God. And then he says this, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So when you talk to them about coming, tell them that it is about one coming to the Lord and now walking in the direction of the Lord, walking in holiness, walking in righteousness, walking to the point where you're constantly being sanctified. And this is his heart. And so as he does this, he says, I want you to teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. How do you teach? Well, you can teach it just with words, or you could do what Jesus did and show them what to do. See, some people can teach only with words. Some people actually teach without words. And I'll tell you what, the teaching without words is a far more powerful teaching than that with words. There have been Christians in my life that have taught me through their actions what it is to be a Christian. I've seen how husbands love their wives. I've seen how people minister to the body in grace. I've seen how people simply loved. And these were experiences, not just someone telling me about these truths. They literally witnessed these truths. And says, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. All the things that I've said, all these things that I've done, this is what you do. And then he makes this statement at the end of, of Matthew 28, verse 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Now, I don't know if you know this, but God just calls me Lowell. He does. Others call me Lowell, and that's fine. Some just Lowell. Uh, but, but God, he calls me Lowell. And he makes this statement telling all the disciples that he said, Lowell, I am with you always, even... Now, I'm sure he's with them, too. I'm worried with you guys, too. But it was just a message to me. Lo, I am with you always. Now, the reason I do this is because there were a bunch of pastors at a pastor's conference. And, and they, were, they were talking about how God would speak to them, how God would speak to them. And, and the message came, and it was, they taught on this. And I thought, man, you think God speaks to you? Check this out. <laughs> and and uh, so I gave everybody a hard time knowing how their names in the Bible like this, like I did. For Jesus said, I am with you. And, um, but he's saying, listen guys, I'm with you always. Always. That goes right back to you do not have to fear death. You don't have to fear anything. He is with us. The, the one who in verse 18 has all authority in heaven on earth, he is the one who's with us. So if you think anything can happen to you or anything that can happen to me or anything that can happen to the study or anything that can happen to the church of Christ as a whole without God saying, I'm good with this. Understand, he is with us even to the end of the age. Even to the very end of all time, he is going to be with us. And then, of course, Matthew simply says, amen, so be it. So as we look to this, I think it's important that as we see here this resurrection, Lord, understand what the, the, the resurrection means to us and how God wants to give a message. And I think this message is for us. Come and experience and go and tell. Come and experience and go and tell. And where they realize that what they're experiencing is the truth of Christ's words is the sign of who he is, God in the flesh. The sign that when he said on the cross, it is finished, is all boiled into one thing. When he rose from the dead, God was saying this, I accept the sacrifice for your sins. When God says, I accept it, he does this. You're no longer dead. The sacrifice is sufficient. And because he's risen, it's evident to you and to me that this, the, the penalty of our sin has been taken out of the way. It was nailed to the cross. God accepted the sacrifice. When he said it was finished, the redemption of you and I was finished. God says the proof of that is going to be, yes, the resurrection of the Lord. And what God wants all of us is this, is go witness the power of death being conquered. Witness that power. Witness the living Christ in you. Witness the Holy Spirit in you that was given because he went to the cross and he died and he rose again. These are truths that you and I can experience and we can go and witness these things to the world who is so afraid of death. And we get to tell them, listen, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will never, ever die. See, I don't have to worry about getting, you know, uh, the flu. I don't have to worry about getting, you know, COVID. I don't have to worry about those things. God has my soul eternally secure in him. What I want to do is this. I want to go to those people who are so terrified 
of physical death. And, and I want to, with the authority that God gives me to say, I have the authority from God to tell you, come and gather, that we can say, you don't have to be afraid of death. You do not have to be afraid of death. It has been conquered. Why? Look at the stone rolled away from the tomb and realize he is not here. He is risen. Amen? Amen. Father, we are so grateful for this word. So grateful for this book. You've shown us so many things. As you've shown us these things, Lord, we've seen over and over again the reality, Jesus, of your love, your incredible love, and the long-suffering that you had towards those that were your own. They would constantly bicker, they would constantly fight, they would constantly not get it, and through all these things, you had those religious leaders, those that should have ushered in your coming those that should have welcomed you, those that should have known the signs and believed the signs, that they were so involved in their own religion, in their own position, in society, and in the synagogue, that they would not humble themselves. And yet those who were humbled, God, even if they didn't get it right, you loved them. You loved these disciples. You would come and you would call them brethren. And you would meet with them. And you would give them this beautiful word to say the things that you've experienced. Go and share. The things that you know experientially, go and witness. Father, help us be those who do those two things. In our worship of you, in our worship of you, holding on to you, clinging to you, let us be witnesses that you are alive, experiencing your life in us. And then go and tell this lost and dying world the truth of what we are experiencing even now today. Jesus, you are the King of Israel. Was there upon your cross? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Pilate would say, Behold your King. We know, Jesus, that the wise men said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You are king of the Jews. You are king of us. You are king of kings and Lord of lords. And we are witnesses of your majesty. We have experientially witnessed your majesty. Help us to testify of these truths. Help us to witness. Help us to declare them. Oh, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Give us the power to do so. We ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.